Arcadia, California this evening, and you're on the radio, Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions? Well, we've got answers. Family law experts answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, spousal support. This night, tonight we are on the radio with attorney Vince Davis, that's myself, and we're also going to be joined with an associate of mine, attorney Daniel Knowlton. Daniel, are you there with us this evening? I am, Vince. I can hear you. How are you this evening? Very good. Sure is a pleasure to be with you tonight. Thank you. Daniel, today I was asking you a question about how long you were practicing. I've been telling people you've been practicing about 30 years. And today you told me you've been practicing how long? 39 years. Um, I would feel better if I'd only practiced 30 years. Then I'd be a little young. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't mind. So, uh, I'm approaching 40 years. So I would um, say that you are truly an expert in this area of law. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, that appellation. Um, and uh, yes, I've I've uh, been practicing a long time in this area, and I've also passed the uh, specialist examination. Although I'm not certified yet, I should be in a few months. Very good, very good. Well, Daniel, we have a list of questions that have been posed by prospective clients who have called in this week or emailed in this week. Do you have a list of those questions with you? I do, I do. <clears throat> well, let's start on the first question. What, what is the first question this week? Um, I am considering divorcing my wife. We have discussed this option before, where she agreed to allow me to have full custody over our boys. More recently, she has changed her mind. Is there any way I can ensure that I get full custody? Okay, what do you have to say for that question? Well, uh, there's no way that we can guarantee it um, that, that I can think of. I'm subject to your opinion, Vince. Uh, but I think the best um, option one can do in that situation is to do a stipulation with her. That is a written agreement signed by both parties. And uh, if if that's done, then uh, there's more likelihood that the court later, if it's brought up to court, uh, would go along with it or at least would see that that was the party's intention at one time and she'd have some explaining to do why she would have agreed then that I would be the best parent and not now. Uh, one thing about stipulations is, of course, that they're always modifiable. Child custody matters are always modifiable. So the court can step in at any time despite a stipulation and um, on a showing of good cause or that is best interest of the child or change of circumstances, <clears throat> the court can step in and modify child custody. That's the danger here. Um, if if this uh, husband has a good timeshare now, that's another way of ensuring that he will do well in a custody battle or a custody dispute. And when I say a timeshare, what I mean is is he the one who's spending most of the time looking after the kids? Or is it the, the mother, the wife who is doing it, for example? 
um, because that timeshare is going to be a crucial factor uh, in the court later. The courts are very uh, impressed and, and a, a major factor in the court's consideration is the status quo ante. That is, how were things going with kids before uh, this dispute in court uh, came up? And if you can show that, that the dad was the, was the primary parent, that he was the one who was addressing the kids' needs and spending the time uh, with them more than the wife was or the mother was, then he's got a better shot. Well, Dan, let me ask a couple of – yeah, let me – well, let me ask you a couple of follow-up questions. Now, you sure. mentioned the timeshare, and you gave us a little bit of an example of what that was. But when you go to court, how is the timeshare actually computed by the judge? Well, I've seen it in various ways. Um, I think a, a just um, a standard timeshare arrangement – I think most of the judges would go with the 20% when we have a parent who's who's not uh, spending much time with the kids. Uh, a 20% is usually considered like every other weekend for typically a dad, although it could be a mom. Uh, every other weekend, plus say a Wednesday midweek, um, you know, after school until or dinner time or eight o'clock or seven o'clock, plus um, shared holidays and sometime in the summer or. Uh, shared um, uh, school vacations, that kind of thing. That's often considered a 20%. But actually, when it gets disputed, and it often is, the attorneys actually sit down sometimes and, and uh, write up the actual hours that the kids are with one parent or the other. And uh, typically, um, there's some dispute about you know who gets credit for the school time but, of course, if you have drop the kids off in the morning and you pick them up after school, then you would get credit for the school time. And there's actually one case that holds that the parent who uh, the school would have to call um, to take care of the kids, that parent is the one who gets credit for the school time. Um, and uh, that was a case involving a, a child attending a private school abroad. But it, it did set forth a rule to that effect. Now, one thing that hasn't been mentioned in this case or asked is, has there been domestic violence? If there's been domestic violence in the case, or there's, um, you know, at the time that you go to court, um, then we have a rule, Family Code uh, Section 3044, which says that the innocent parent uh, of domestic violence, that parent is presumed to be the more fit parent for custody. So I'd advise this dad, whatever he does, uh, keep keep um, peaceful and don't don't uh, do anything physical in any way, or the mom for that matter, because that presumption has become increasingly powerful over the last 15 years. I would say, uh, particularly the last couple of years. Um, I'd also advise this dad that he should continue the practice of sharing and showing. Uh, his flexibility in, in sharing, because the courts like to see a continuous and frequent visitation with the kids. Um, that is helpful if you're asking for custody. Um, the, um, of course, the main factor in, in which parent uh, would have the time with the kids is the best interest of the children, the best interest rule. And that's going to govern in most circumstances. 
Daniel, you know, the the timeshare or the amount of custody one parent has over the other parent is also important to some economic factors in the case. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. In the last, oh, six or seven years, maybe ten years, we've um, the, the legislature has tied the timeshare to the the child support guidelines. Now, the um, federal law years ago mandated some uniformity among the states and required the states to adopt uh, time timeshare uh, or formulas, not timeshare formulas, but child support formulas. They don't have to be uniform state to state, but the state does have to have a consistent formula um, as to how it's going to determine child support. For example, in Nevada, I hear it's a 15% of the net kind of arrangement. It's a fairly simple rule, but not very fair in the law of circumstances. California has a, a complicated formula, but one of the biggest factors after considering the income of both parents, the relative income, one of the biggest factors is the time that each parent is spending with the child. So as a result of that, both parents have a motivation to spend as much time with the children as possible because the more time they spend, the more um, they get for the custodial parent in the way of child support. And from, I say a, da a dad, it could be a mom, but typically we've seen dads. <clears throat> if a dad spends more time, he has to pay less child support. And that's because the, the relative time that the child is with each parent uh, determines how much support that parent has to pay on one hand or gets on the other hand. So we have dads who sometimes you'd think weren't very interested um, in having child visitation. Suddenly when they've talked to someone who knows about this tie-in with the support formula, become want to become super dads. You want to become 50-50 dads, you know, when maybe they're not intending to, to spend 50% of the time with a child at all. All they want is to is to pretend that they're a 50% timeshare just to get a reduction of their child support. And again, I've said dads, but it could be dads or moms. Right. <clears throat> Does it have any effect with respect to uh, spousal support? Um, I don't see it so direct on spousal support, although spousal support, uh, spousal support is governed both at the temporary level before the trial or full settlement and the post-trial or full settlement uh, uh, period. It's governed by what we call the 4320 factors. Now, the family code, which governs all this, the family code 4320 factors are about 14 or 15 different factors that a court for ordering uh, post-judgment, I, I hesitate to call it permanent support, but post-judgment support. These are factors the court has to consider, uh, and usually on the record in, in court, um, before it orders the amount of support. So the court in post-trial uh, or, or full uh, long-term settlement, the court has to go through those factors rather than using the child support guideline. So the needs of the children, the time that you're spending with the children, the expenses of the children, uh, the, the best interest of the children under several cases. Um, um, uh, let's see, um, 
the names evade me for the moment. But this is a modern trend right now that uh, under 4320 factors, the best interest of the children can be strongly considered. But the court has to go through those factors before determining how much spousal support to order. So yes, indirectly, it can have a large impact on the uh, um, spousal support, what, what people call alimony in other states. Did I cover that? Um, also, one thing we should always be considering when we're talking about support are the and custody are the ages of the children. Uh, if a child is, for example, 14 years and older, there's more uh, likely a tendency for the court to listen to the child's point of view. But younger than that, then the court is a little more reluctant. Uh, anything to add on this, Vince? Well, I think I've lost you here. Let me see if I can try another uh, another method. Hello, I'm sorry we had some uh, technical difficulties there, and I think that we were both uh, Dan and I were both kicked off of the air. Dan, are you with back me with me? I am. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, we yeah. had some uh, tech. I can. We had some technical difficulties there. So we okay, left off. We were talking here. about spousal support. Yes. And uh, shall we go on to question two, or are we ready for that? Yeah, why don't, we go, why don't we go to question two? Okay. I have been living with my fiancé for three years now. We are still not officially married. The home we have been living in is owned by him. He has never asked me to contribute to a house payment, but he expected me to pay a majority of the house bills. If the house is being repossessed by the bank, will my name be included in any paperwork? <clears throat> Would you like me to start off on That's that? That's a very good question. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Well, um, in general, of course, I have to first ask, what state are we in? If we're in California, that's one thing. In, in another state, it might be entirely different. But uh, since our audience is most likely California, I'll, I'll answer for that. In California, I think the answer to this question is no. Um, there is a possibility, of course, that, and I think what is being implied in this question is maybe a Marvin, a Lee Marvin arrangement from that very famous case of 15, 20 years ago. Um, in the Lee, the Lee Marvin case, uh, there was an allegation of an implied contract or a pooling agreement that seems to be implied in this question. That is, he expected me to pay the majority of the house bills, and he's paying the house mortgage. So do we own the house together because I'm paying the house bills, he's paying the mortgage, does that give me an interest in the house? Now, if you could prove a pooling agreement, maybe you could convince the court that there's a Marvin arrangement or an implied co-ownership like, um, like we see in what are called more Marsden credits. But I think that's an uphill fight. I think that would be very difficult under the current law and under the, the kinds of rulings I'm seeing from the courts. Um, the... Uh, 
of course, I'm, I'm assuming for my answer here that um, the, the lady has not signed the loan agreement. I'm assuming that uh, the husband or the, the would-be husband, the, the male partner, uh, has the loan solely in his name. If she had signed the loan agreement, uh, for example, if they had refinanced the house uh, at some time in both of their names, then, of course, she would have some exposure, possibly. Now, we have a thing called uh, uh, anti-deficiency legislation in California that is normally when the person signs a, a loan to buy a house, that person can't have a deficiency judgment if there's a foreclosure, normally. But if a refi happens, there, it might be a purchase money loan, what they call a purchase money loan. And if she had signed on that loan with him for the refi, yes, she would have some exposure to purchase money deficiency in the event of a uh, judicial sale, but probably not with a, a normal foreclosure sale. Um, do you have any input on that one, Vince? No. As a matter of fact, Dan, we still seem to be having some technical difficulties. A lot of listeners are saying they hear a lot of static. Do you hear a lot of static in the background? Uh, no, it's clear from my hearing. Um, should we try to reconnect? Yes, let's try to reconnect. Okay, give me 30 seconds and we'll do that. Okay. Okay, I'm back on the air. Sorry about that uh, technical difficulties. Best laid plans always seem to go awry. Let's see, Daniel seems to be back with us. Uh, yes, I'm back. Uh, can you hear me? Very good. I can hear Does you loud mean... and clear. No static on my end. Oh, that's yes. It's a little stronger and I just got, too. I just no, got a and I just got a message from a listener saying no static. So we can continue. Wonderful. Okay, shall we go to uh, question three? Let's do it. About eight years ago, my wife and I went to court and got a visitation order. It said she would have our children for all major holidays, since I am constantly out of the country for business. I just moved back to California and want to change the visitation order. What should I do first? Do you think he should uh, <laughs> request a stipulation or file in court right away? Well, I think that he should request a stipulation. Um, we always have a duty to try to do a meet and confer. Um, that is, try to resolve it informally. And uh, that would be a smart thing to do. And, of course, um, if he got into negotiations with his wife about how to resolve this, um, maybe it, uh, those negotiations go on and last uh, days and have hassles. But that's always uh, good if you can get an agreement that both parties feel invested in. Um, one of the uh, problems he'll have when he um, goes goes into court is whether or not he has to uh, show a material change of circumstances. Um, now, the question is that he originally went to court and got a visitation order. Um, so, to change a custody or visitation order, the normal rule is that the party who seeks to change the order has to show a material change of circumstances. 
Um, there are some exceptions to that. Shall I go into the exceptions? Because most, most commentators, most commentators feel they eat up the rule. Um, in in the case of a stipulated order, now for example, if when they went to court eight years ago and got that order, they stipulated to it, uh, you know, agreed to it. It wasn't tried before the court. The judge didn't shove it down their throats. They agreed to it and recited it on the record, or they had a written agreement. If that were the case, then no material change of circumstances is necessary to be shown. All that's required is the best interest of the child. Um, um, is in favor of a change of the visitation order. So that's a nice nice thing to know, that it, it is just the best interest of the child. Also, if the parties have agreed um, or the court ordered before that it was a joint physical custody arrangement, a joint custody arrangement, which uh, a lot of commentators think is over 30%, um, if if they're actually exercising that joint physical custody arrangement, then no material change of circumstances is necessary either. Just, again, showing of the best interest of the child. A third exception to that uh, change of circumstances rule, which can be a, a high hurdle to leap over at times, a third exception is if it was a domestic violence restraining order that led to the visitation order. Um, my recollection is that that does not require a change of a material change of circumstances to be proven either. So uh, that would be helpful for him in this situation where he's coming back to California and wanting to, to change it. And, of course, he does have a material change of circumstances probably because he's been away and, uh, for a long time. You know, he's coming back to California now. And probably he had an arrangement before where he had spotty visitation or grouped visitation, you know, longer periods of time, maybe all summer, but no other weekends, or some um, some long holidays, but no normal weekends, that kind of arrangement. That would constitute a material change of circumstances, probably, because this, the, the arrangement of the children has been um, vastly changed when he comes back. Do, so what are the three exceptions again? Oh, um, the first one is stipulated agreements. So if you had custody or visitation orders that had stipulated agreements, those um, would not require the proof of a material change of circumstances. And secondly, if you had true joint physical custody arrangements, and that's not just that we we have it in the, in the language of the of the judgment that it's joint custody, you know, where, for example, one parent talks the other parent into a 50-50 joint physical custody arrangement but never sees the kids or sees them only every other weekend. That's not a true 50-50 or it's not a true physical um, sharing um, arrangement. You know, so if it's just a 20% every other weekend type of arrangement, that's not joint physical custody. So... If there is the joint physical custody, then the Birnbaum case says that a material change of circumstance is not necessary. And the third exception, I believe, is if the order came out of a domestic violence court, that is, if it were circumstances of domestic violence, then 
um, I don't believe a material change is required there either. So those three are the main exceptions. Excellent, excellent. I've learned something new tonight uh, from that. I did not know that um, about that true joint physical custody. Oh yeah, um, yeah. The, exception. The, yeah, that's recognized in several. I mean, this uh, threshold idea of at some point at which you have enough timeshare that it becomes true physical sharing, true physical joint custody has been recognized by cases like the Bialis case is uh, one case that has shown that. And I think that the threshold is about 30-ish percent. So, you know, we're seeing um, parents in courts now who may not have had much interest in the kids trying like the Dickens to get over the 30 percent or over around that area, you know, just because they recognize that once they're there, uh, then it's um, it's easier for them uh, to be into this true joint sharing arrangement. So without having to prove a, a material change of circumstances. The commentators think that that really, that that material change of circumstances rule has been eaten up by these exceptions. Shall we go to I question can see four? That. I can definitely. Definitely. Okay. Uh, in 2008, I went to jail for a felony criminal charge. I am now living in Los Angeles again and want to see my children. My ex-wife will not allow me to visit uh, them or talk to them over the phone. She does have full custody at this time. Is there any way for a convicted felon to gain back visitation and custody rights? Will I have to make child support payments if she has custody still? So it's a kind of two-part <clears throat> question, custody, visitation, and child support? Yeah, yeah. Um, can he have access to the kids again in the way of visitation, et cetera? And will he have to pay child support uh, payments if she still has custody. So my my feeling about this is that uh, we've seen a lot of changes in California law in the last 10 years or so. And um, one of them is, for example, in same-sex uh, relationships. The court has determined that just because uh, parties are in a same-sex relationship, that alone is not a per se consideration barring someone from custody or child visitation, which uh, is probably shocking to some conservative folks, but that is the, our law in California. And this also applies, that kind of thinking also applies to immigration rights. Just because someone uh, is an um, undocumented immigrant, uh, that is not a per se bar to them having custody or visitation. Similarly, just because someone has a felony conviction on their record is not itself alone, per se. It's not itself alone a bar to that person having custody and visitation, child visitation. The key question, as you might guess, of course, is what was that felony? What kind of criminal charge was it? Because the judges are not, while they're bound not to consider that a per se bar, the, the fact of a felony conviction, if they see that the felony type was the kind that it, that is not favorable to children. 
or endangers children, then of course it's a big consideration. So it, it all depends on this question about what type of felony it was. And, uh, you know, was it violent? Uh, was there violence against children? Is there child endangerment? Um, in, in those kind of circumstances, you know, the wife would be very smart to prevent um, contact, and the court would probably support her uh, in protecting the children. You know, she would be very smart in trying to have supervised or monitored visitation for the children, or um, uh, monitored visitation with the possibility that later it could uh, increase to some other less restrictive form. Um, depending on what that felony charge was. So, um, and also, of course, this depends on whether DCFS, the Department of Child and Family Services, was involved, which they naturally would have been if it had been a, uh, a dangerous, danger to the child type of criminal charge. Um, <clears throat> for example, if the years have gone by and uh, after that felony charge, and um, maybe the under DCFS, maybe uh, the dad um, didn't have any rights to see the children legally. Maybe he could do a motion in the court, in the juvenile court, uh, I think a 388 motion, I believe is what it's called, to try to get some type of contact again with the children. Vince, you are the expert in that area, and uh, I hope I have that right. You do, you, you do. There? I was just wondering about. Okay. Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes. I was just wondering good. about. Um, uh, so, as far as the listeners are concerned, just because there is a felony conviction doesn't mean there's a per se prohibition against the convicted felon from getting visitation with the children. But it does matter what the what the convicted felon was convicted for. So, if it was perhaps child abuse or child pornography, that convicted felon is going to have a difficult time, you know, maybe getting back into the children's lives. But if it was a felony conviction for, you know, maybe some type of nonviolent white-collar crime, um, <coughs> excuse me, perhaps it would be easier uh, for that convicted felon to get back into the children's lives. Would you agree with that, Dan? I certainly would. That's exactly right. Um, and uh, uh, one thing I would want to point out under this question, a, a very strong possibility may have happened under these facts, that while this gentleman was, um, uh, or this person was in jail, it's quite possible that the juvenile court might have, uh, at the behest of the mother, um, it's quite possible that they may have terminated his rights as a parent. It's possible that they've done, the mother has proceeded with a, um, freedom from parental control action. And I understand, and, and uh, Vince is the expert on this, I understand that um, there are two, at least two different types of these uh, termination actions where a parent can actually have that the other parent's parental rights terminated forever. And uh, uh, one of them is that if he, he for example, uh, hasn't uh, had any contact with a child for, I think it's a year, and in addition hasn't paid any support for a year, uh, then his rights could be terminated. And I think there's another one where it's a different time period. And of of two of them, 
two of these procedures that are available. Under one of them, um, the father, I'll assume for a moment, for the sake of discussion, the father would no longer be obliged, once his parental rights have terminated, he's no longer obliged to pay child support. So once those rights uh, as a parent have gone, also his obligation to pay child support is gone. And under another procedure for parental termination, um, the, his rights continue to to be uh, his rights to or his duties to pay child support continue. So that is an interesting dilemma as to how the other spouse, the innocent spouse, proceeds. Whether they if they want to terminate him so that he has an obligation to pay support, or whether they terminate him and he has and free him up for no support. Um, Vince, you might want to correct anything that I've misstated on that. Oh, no, there are several areas. Um, there's a list in the family code uh, about what could constitute a termination <clears throat> of a, for example, a father's rights. And you were right. One of them is, um, you know, not seeing the child. I think it's within a year, not visiting the child. Another one is not paying child support. And I think that's also a year but I have to check it. And one of them that's kind of related to the question is, if the father or if the parent was convicted of a serious felony, the innocent uh, the innocent parent can petition to have uh, the other parent's rights terminated. I rarely see that. Um, I've seen a lot with the, you haven't visited in a year or you haven't paid child support in a year. But I, I, in my years of practice, I haven't seen one with respect to oh, you were convicted of a serious felony. Uh, right. doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It's just that I personally haven't seen it. Uh-huh. Well, there's an interesting thing that I've heard of lately, um, and this is even more rare. I understand under the juvenile um, law, the juvenile court law, that um, if a freedom from parental control action has been granted and, say, the father, say the father's rights have been terminated for good, uh, but with with a view on the court's part that the child is going to be adopted, but lo and behold, it turns out that the child isn't adopted, say by a step-parent or something like that, that if that doesn't occur, that a party actually can petition to restore the father's, in this example, the father's rights to be a parent again, uh, including that the child could, of course, through um, an attorney appointed by the court, often that the actually the child could petition to have his um, biological father's rights or his true father's rights if there's an, another presumption to have those rights restored so uh, that's a, a strange wrinkle and rarer yet yes yes you know the, i think the law favors at least having uh, at least two parents, and I say at least two parents now because since I think it was January 2015 in California, uh, a child can have more than two parents, two legal parents. Yes. Absolutely. And that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> that's yes. a whole other discussion. Why don't we go to the next question? Okay. If I take my husband to family law court and demand he pay child and spousal support, how do I know how much I would get each month? He works for the County of Los Angeles and is close to retirement. Well, the nice thing uh, that this lady has 
going is that uh, he's a public employee, and so his records should be more accessible uh, than normal. Although she should not have trouble getting his records in any event um, if she goes back to family court, uh, because there is a procedure whereby, um, uh, well, first of all, if she files a motion, he is required to, uh, a motion called an RFO, request for order, he is required to provide his financial records in the income and expense declaration he's required to file. But additionally, uh, once a year, a party can request an income and expense declaration from the other party, even after a, um, a child support or spousal support hearing, um, as long as support is is uh, at issue, and and get those records. And if the other party doesn't give them, they can actually file a motion to compel them through the court, and get attorney's fees for it too. So, but uh, this does bring up the question about the uh, the guideline. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, in California, you can uh, go to various sources and use the uh, guideline, the California guideline, if you know what his income is, and uh, you know your own income, of course, and just plug those figures in along with the timeshare and other information such as who's paying for the health insurance and that kind of thing. And from that, you, from the guideline, you can get a fairly good prediction about what the support order would be from the court. Uh, it's a little more difficult if you're talking about spousal support post-judgment, that is long-term spousal support. Then we have to go through the 4320 factors, as I mentioned earlier. But um, um, sometimes it actually takes uh, an attorney with a lot of experience to do the guideline properly because sometimes there are a lot of arguments, subtle arguments um, and changes about what factors go into the guideline. For example, uh, whether someone gets a hardship um, deduction in the guideline for another child that that person is paying support for. The court is not required to give hardships. The court has discretion to give hardships, and they can give fractional hardships or percentage hardships, less than the full hardship. And that can have a large uh, impact on the support. <clears throat> and arguments about what the timeshare was are very common and uh, other other arguments. Um, oh, and with regard to him being close to retirement, that question um, uh, brings up, if he is retiring, does that mean that all support stops? And the answer to that is certainly not. Uh, so if child support would change, if he has a step down because of the retirement, you know, then uh, he could go in and ask it be modified downward if his retirement is lower than his regular pay was. And that's a factor that could be considered also for spousal support. Um, but, um, you know, there are cases where, for example, a gentleman has wanted to uh, to retire, but the wife didn't want him to because her support would be cut. Uh, you can't the law is basically now that you can't force him to work past 65 just because his support would be higher. Um, what if he wanted to retire at 62? I think 65. Uh, the cases have been holding 65 as the, as the date. Now, say he actually goes ahead and retires at 62. Uh, then uh, you could ask the court to consider as a factor that there was a voluntary 
retirement or voluntarily quitting the job, um, and then uh, ask the court to keep the support amounts just as though they had been before. Because in my experience, and I think we have a rule about this, 65 is the age, uh, even though he might uh, have contractual rights to retire earlier. Um, and also, this question calls calls out that he works for the county of Los Angeles, <clears throat> and um, I, I'm no expert about this particular type of pension, but it might be that he has a LACERA, I think is the uh, acronym for it, a LACERA pension, in which case one has to be very concerned about whether the, the other spouse, the non-retiring spouse, the wife here, the, the wife would be able to get a survivor annuity under that LACERA pension. I think the LACERA pension is a red flag for a, a, a wife being in a risky position about survivor annuities. Um, that just jumps out because of the County of Los Angeles in the question. I'm, uh, Very good. Let's take one more question, and then I want to, in the last 15 minutes, I want to talk about a case that we actually have in the office, and I want to get your opinion about it. So it's kind of like Ask the Expert, Daniel Noten. So let's take one more question. Okay. Um, last week... Uh, let me see here. No, no, no. Before I married my wife, I told her I wanted us to sign a prenuptial agreement. She first agreed, but now she will not marry me if I make her sign one. I am unsure what her true motives are, but I want to marry her still. Is there something else I could do to protect myself and my assets? I have multiple homes and cars. If we get divorced in the future, I want to make sure she has zero rights to my things. Now, this may be a little um, abstract, but I have to explain something here in answer to this question. <clears throat> Is there something he can do? There are very few things he can do uh, there are some things that are improper to do that people do anyway, and I don't recommend it, and I think it's really dangerous. But the one thing that I think he could do is to put his assets into a blind, so to speak. Now, the reason that that is the case, and I'll explain what a blind trust is, is because if he continues working uh, during the marriage, um, or during... Yeah, if he is working during the marriage and accumulating more assets, um, then this question of the Pereira and the Van Camp cases comes to play because our court has a tradition that they respect uh, community earnings or community uh, um, accumulations that come from the efforts of either party during the marriage say a husband has a small business that he's had during the marriage, but he keeps working it, and he does well, and, uh, and, and he, but he wants her to get nothing, um, <clears throat> she would have a right to a, a percentage of the business that he's earning during the marriage. A higher percentage would be community under the Pereira case, the famous Pereira case, and a less uh, strong community interest would be under the Van Camp case. Now, for this gentleman, the only way I can think of that he would have 
that she would have zero rights to his things uh, uh, afterward is if he took all of his assets and put them into a blind trust or into an investment that did not require his activity whatsoever. For example, if he just put it all into a mutual fund where he was not picking the stocks. Say he had a million dollars, put them into a mutual fund. <clears throat> um, a broker is picking the stocks, and he's not telling the broker what to do. The wife, years later, when another half million dollars is earned from that first million, the wife later, if that that million, the first million was his separate property, she could not say that she has a share of that of the, that half million earned from his separate property because he had nothing that he did during the marriage to to have created the second half million. He did no community activity. All he did was take his separate property and place it into a stock investment. And that's about the only way I think the courts would respect that she would have no community interests, whatever. Uh, Vince, did you have a comment there? Well, you know, going back to the original question, um, other than the example that you gave, and I'm not sure that that's a, you know, 100% airtight um, uh, Well, so few things rule, are, but, the courts. Um, I don't know if he can do anything um, to protect his assets other than not get married. Well, that's a good answer, uh, and I like that because, <laughs> you know, people are tempted to put things into a trust, but a trust won't do it, you know, a living trust. An irrevocable trust where he's not active in it might do it, but an irrevocable trust is not a good advice, uh, not well advised, because then he's given away this property. He doesn't get it back either. And so many people are tempted to give it to a relative, uh, you know, put it in their mother's name or their buddy's name or something. But boy, that's not only illegal and fraudulent, it's called a, a defrauding creditors, a transfer and defraud of creditors, but, it, you know, the, the buddy suddenly might get the desire to keep the property and never give it back to the man. And, you know, we see that all the time, and it's very uh, improper. We would never recommend that kind of thing. What if, um, just out of curiosity, what do you think, Dan, if before the marriage he transfers property into a relative's name and then he gets married and then there's a divorce, do you think that that transfer before the marriage is fraudulent? Um, on the face of it, no, I don't think it would be. I think that's like putting it into a blind trust. It's when I say blind trust, it's like when when somebody becomes president of the United States, they take their assets and put it into somebody else's management, and that person manages it. So you can't say the president was trying to influence his investments. Um, so um, if if you took your 100% separate property, put it into, uh, or you gave it to a friend or your mother or your father, something like that, I don't think it would be per se illegal or improper or a defraud of creditors. Uh, however, our legal system and our lawyers are trying to be as zealous as they can. You can bet that somebody will argue that you're trying uh, to breach fiduciary, but it was your money. You had 100% control. As long as it was done before marriage and it was not in violation of a prenuptial agreement, it seems to me like you're you're free to do that. 
I don't recommend you do it I'll until you, uh, you talk to counsel. But. Right. I'll tell you uh, an interesting thing that happened in a case a few years ago. Um, someone that I represented, before he got married, transferred uh, a piece of property worth a little bit more than a million dollars to um, a relative. It was actually to a first cousin who was basically like his brother. Well, he gets married and the first cousin dies unexpectedly. And this house, this property is in the first cousin's name. Well, the first cousin was married and had children. Guess who went after the property? Well, I'm sure that uh, the wife did, and uh, and the, the children, depending on you know the the first cousin's uh, testamentary arrangements, you know his will and trust. Right, and my client, who had done this without my advice, had um, had nothing in writing to show otherwise. Well, and also that same situation happens frequently that the creditors of of the first cousin in this example you know come in and make claims and uh, or worse the IRS comes in you know if the first cousin owns owes taxes the IRS or the FTB could right. come in and levy against the assets and of course bankruptcy you know then we have a a super lien of the trustee coming in uh, claiming that property right not saying right. that the the person who the transferor not saying that the transferor's uh true heirs and um successors couldn't contest it in probate court i think they could but the problem is there there they are with what looks like dirty hands because um it looks like the transferor was trying to hide property uh, you know so that's always delicate you know it's um transfers and defraud of creditors it's what is alleged, and you're you're at the mercy of that first cousin during during uh, his lifetime too. Dan, in the last few minutes of our show, I want to give you an actual factual situation, and I I, I want you to give me some advice on it. Sort of like ask the expert. I represent a high I represent a high income earner. He has a child with a woman who he was never married to. Several years back, he was making a large sum of money. He was making about $6 million a year. Subsequently, uh, his income went down, and he was paying child support at that high rate. Subsequently, his income went down to about $2 million a year. So we went back to court and we lowered the um, child support based upon his reduced number. There has been a change in his circumstances recently where he is now making maybe, I think, about $4 million a year. So his, his income has doubled. I would like to argue to the court that the child support amount which the mother is receiving based upon $2 million a year, which is about um, 
ten, eleven thousand dollars is sufficient to take care of the child based upon where the child's living, going to school, etc. The mother's attorney, of course, wants to basically almost double the child support because he's basically doubled his income. Is there any law in California that supports my position? And if so, what would be the best arguments? Um, well, uh, there have been some cases with regard to determining what someone's income is in the support area. Um, child support is a little more difficult because the, the legislature has hemmed in our options a lot in child support. <clears throat> but in the, in the spousal support area, for example, uh, there have been cases dealing with how you determine what is a reasonable period of time to uh, consider in determining what someone's average income is. Uh, for example, um, if uh, an author sells a, a book that makes a uh, million dollars this year, but next year he's... Uh, his books fall flat and he's only making 50000 And then the next year he gets nothing um, because his books are not selling. And then the next year he is back up to, to regular speed. Does the court look, as it usually does, just at the last 12 months? In the standard support situation, the court looks at the last 12 months of income for the historical income averaging or average over that 12 months. But uh, there has been authority that you can look at periods different from that 12 months where someone's income is like this, the author that I've just spoken of. <clears throat> and uh, in that case, the court allowed uh, uh, the individual to use a three-year period, a three-year period for the averaging of the income. So um, perhaps that argument could persuade a court uh, because... Uh, um, it's obvious that there's a great variation of the income, and so we're looking, we're arguing about what period is the most pertinent period for uh, determining the support. Now, we haven't talked about other things either with uh, this possible case, and I don't know the facts of that, but um, the courts have recognized um, educational trusts for high-income individuals. Uh, sometimes... Um, the court would consider if the parties have stipulated to an educational trust, the courts can consider how much is being paid into the educational trust as a way of um, mitigating the ongoing uh, child support. And um, so that is one possibility. If, if the parties agreed to an educational trust, there's a little more flexibility there um, for supporting the child and considering what period and what amounts. <clears throat> um, now, is there a statute in the family code? Is there a statute in the family code that says uh, you can prove that, or try to prove, or convince the judge that the mother in this case should receive below guidelines? Um, There are uh, the the court does allow variances in some circumstances. Um, I can't think at this moment of what the variance could be. 
uh, to allow below the guideline. Um, There, there are some, but, but it's, it's escaping me at the moment. Uh, the court has the most flexibility in determining um, what the income is. That's where the variances are allowed um, more often and where the Court of Appeal is upholding the variances more often is, is when the court is determining what the true income is rather than the court trying to uh, get away with uh, ordering a lower support amount based on the, the guideline. So our uh, uh, um, best, the best shot, uh, I'll just say in general, the best shot of trying to get a variance from the guideline would be to convince the court that the income changes should mitigate and a lower income should be considered rather than asking for an exception um, to the guideline amounts. And I'd go back to that period argument um, again. Okay. Uh, that's a, you, you've, I think this is going to take a little more study to look into uh, than just a, an opinion on the fly with, with this particular uh, situation. But, uh, okay. Uh, okay, go ahead. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we're coming to the end of the show. Um, our callers can listen in next week. What topics would you like to talk to about about next week? Uh, you know, maybe we should talk about a couple celebrity family law matters that are. I know a lot of people like to hear oh. about that, and maybe we can talk some more about child support as well. And child support, sure. How's that? And, uh, asset and asset division is always interesting too. Um, you know, particularly business divisions and uh, and real estate. Uh, I've got a a strong background in real estate divisions and uh, uh, okay. how that works. You know, twenty six forties and that's very good. More margins and all that. Okay, well, we'll talk about that next week. Asset division. Talk a little bit about about child support, and we'll touch maybe on some of the celebrity divorce and family law matters that are in the news. Dan, okay. thank you for joining okay, me. I appreciate it. And we'll, great we'll see pleasure. you next week. Okay. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night.